Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verse 35 to the end of that chapter, along with some other scripture this morning. So have your Bible ready. Before I look at the scripture, uh, let me have a word of prayer, specifically this morning for uh, two people. Uh, Saji, uh, his father had died, and he went off to India to... uh, to attend the funeral with his brothers and uh, had a conversation with them. He said his father's a very strong Christian, and he's in his, uh, what, 84 was he? 84, and, and he's with the Lord. He's graduated to heaven. But funerals are a great opportunity to share the gospel to those who uh, don't believe, right? And uh, so, and then Cheryl Frew, her mom has taken sick in Florida, and she went down there to be with her Uh, just have an opportunity to share Christ and be a comfort to our mom. So let's have a word of prayer for that. Lord, this morning, I do ask you to be with our brother Saji as he's traveling to India and uh, with his brothers. I pray that you would give him safe travels and a great opportunity there to be a witness uh, and a testimony that his father's funeral would be a shining light to the gospel of Christ and that, Lord, whoever speaks the word, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give them... uh, Fill them with your spirit so the word of God can go forth clearly and the gospel can reach hearts and raise spiritually dead to life so they may believe in Christ. And then I pray, Lord, be with Cheryl as she uh, ministers to her mom, give her opportunities, Lord, also to share the gospel with her, to be example and a comfort to her. And I pray that you bring them uh, both back safely and accomplish your will by them being there. And Lord, we'll praise you even this morning for the word of God Use it, Lord, to, uh, in a way that you see fit in our own personal lives and our hearts so, Lord, we would be sure about our standing with you and that we would live for you uh, with our whole heart. So use it to encourage us today in that way. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10 We're looking at this morning an encouragement with an appeal to persevere in the faith. Now, he is saying here in Hebrews, if you didn't shrink back, if you remember last week, from Christ, if you didn't shrink back from the doctrine concerning so great a salvation that you received, and if you didn't shrink back from the fellowship of believers in your former trials, when you first became a believer and your sufferings, and your humiliations, he's saying this, you won't shrink back if it happens again. So every trial that may come into our life, every situation that may come into our life, after becoming a believer, it is only to strengthen us, and make us stronger believers, and let go of this world, and the things that we usually put our hope, and our security in, and trust fully in Christ. Now, that's, that's something God has to teach us. It doesn't just happen. I ran across quickly the story of a, about a man named Doug Herman, strong believer, his wife a believer, having their first baby. They go to the hospital, right, joyously holding his baby in his arms. Everything went fine. His wife lost a lot of blood. She had to have a blood transfusion. The blood was tainted with HIV. Two months later, he finds out that his wife is going to die, his baby is going to die, and his grandfather, who has been a stronghold in his Christian life, is going to die. In a period of two months, they all died. And of course, the question would be this, Lord, why? Things happen like that, don't they? But you know what? The why name may not be answered. The promises of God are still going to be the same. He's going to bring salvation to its completion no matter what circumstances you and I may fall into and be part of and have that heart-wrenching stuff going on. We can still trust God that even though we don't have the answers to all the questions, we can trust Him that He's going to bring it to pass and He's going to finalize and sign and seal salvation forever. See, that is the hope that we have. So the point is, make sure that you know when you perish, you're going to be with Christ. You're going to be in heaven. So 
He's saying to them, listen, after listening to the preacher, admonish you to consider seriously what the Lord has actually been doing in your life in the middle of trials, in the middle of sufferings. That after a closer examination of those sufferings, you come to realize that the Lord, your great high priest, was maturing you spiritually developing a proven character in you, a Christ-like character, and the tribulations just manifested spiritual fruit that God was producing in His newly blood-bought children spiritual fruit that they actually were saved. And God was keeping them through the midst of tribulations. So they, as well as we, are called to think about, as I mentioned last week, what we gain in Christ and what we must lose if we shrink away. To think about this correctly, we are all called to consider the great paradox of the Christian life. And as I mentioned last week, it's this, that the Lord's children can be in the midst of trials and tribulations, and humiliations, and be weighed down, depressed in spirit, and have at the very same time a heart of greatly rejoicing. It's a paradox. Don't really understand it. It's only what the Spirit of God can produce. So you see that in these difficult circumstances, we grow spiritually, we mature in the faith, and we do that probably the most of any circumstances that we're going to be in. That is why every time we go through something, we must examine those times closely, the times the Lord has and will again bring us into, into and through times of tribulation, affliction, sickness, sufferings, humili- humiliations, problems in our lives. It is there that we begin to see with the eyes of faith, and we learn at that point we can trust God. That's what it's all about. It's all about trusting God. In fact, this this last section of Scripture is about that. For these believers, when they reviewed their past sufferings and looked closely at them, six things came to the surface. That when they were brand spanking new believers, the first thing that came to the surface is that they had light. They were no longer in darkness. Second thing is that they gained endurance. That they endured great suffering, it says in verse number 32 of chapter 10. The third thing, they gained a deep appreciation of the church, the body of Christ, realizing they can't live the Christian life alone. They need the body, especially during times of tribulation and suffering. We need each other to pray for each other, to hold each other up, to encourage each other, to whatever the body is to do to make sure that we're growing, pouring into each other what we already know so we grow strong, stronger. A fourth thing that they gained is sympathy. They showed sympathy to the prisoners. They gained in looking at people the way they ought to look at people. People need help. They need spiritual help the most. But they need other help and to have sympathy to come in and do something about it. And of course, in this case, they were showing sympathy to those who were in prison, who couldn't get any help anywhere else. They had to get it from the church. And then the fifth thing, to gain joy. They gained joy. That right in the middle of affliction, they started letting letting go of their temporal things, where it says in verse 34, they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. They were taking, their property was taken away, but their joy was still intact. They couldn't take that away from them. The joy that God gives us in salvation that passes all understanding, that joy cannot be taken from you. But when you do lose that joy or give it away, it's because of sin. If you lose your joy, look for sin. Confess your sin and gain your joy back. And then, of course, a sixth thing they gained was the promise of heavenly realities. Look at verse 34. It says this of Hebrews 10. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing 
that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. So there's the things that once they reviewed them seriously, they gained a greater appreciation of what Christ by His Spirit was doing in their life and that when they concluded it, we must all come to this conclusion that it is it would be utterly foolish to throw away so precious and valuable a gift of salvation, of a relationship with God that is now all the barriers are moved away. Now we can come to God and approach Him anytime as His children because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, completing and uh, accomplishing all the work in our behalf. So what's the logical imperative? This this is where I ended last week. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Now see, that's where we're heading today. We're heading to the place where we're understanding the fourth and fifth approach to God, the fourth approach to God, meaning that the followers of Jesus Christ are to keep near with confidence. And then the one that we're going to look at this morning, and it's this, the followers of Jesus Christ are to keep pressing on with endurance. Now that becomes the main focus of this section, but there's another focus that comes in the end, and I'll look at that in a minute. So here is the situation for us this morning, that there is encouragement that we are to to, uh, gain by looking at our trials, right? Looking at our situation. But not only that, in and through those trials, the encouragement that we gain to press on, actually it's twofold encouragement here in Scripture, to press on uh, is the first one, the first encouragement to keep on going, to not let go of your confidence, but to keep on going is in verse 39. It's this, the evidence of a genuine work of grace. Look what it says in verse 39. It says, that's the last verse of chapter 10, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. So he is saying to them, listen, why aren't you those who shrink back to destruction? Because... We have looked in, into our life. We have, other people have observed our life and they observe this. That there's an evidence of a work of God's grace in your life. You're not the same person that you used to be. So, because you have trusted nothing else to save you but the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, the evidence of God's work of grace is present in your daily struggles. That's where it is seen the most in your struggles, in your trials, in your tribulations. That's where it really comes, becomes evident to you and others that God is doing something in your life. He is strengthening you like nothing else can. So here, the encouragement If you didn't shrink back, back then, when you were just babes in Christ, you'll remain steadfast now. Why? Because you know more. You've grown, right? You stuck with the church. You stuck with the teaching. You stuck with the apostles' doctrine. You stuck with the fellowship. You stuck with partaking in the Lord's table. You stuck with listening to the Spirit of God. you stuck with all those things, and you've grown. You've grown in the Word of God. Like he, the admonition given in chapter 2, verse number 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. What, what, what's happening with them? Their ears perk up now. They're, they're listening for the details of God's Word. They're applying the Word of God, not to their neighbor sitting next to them, not to somebody who should be here, who's not, but to themselves. And so they put themselves in the equation, and so they've grown. Also, their souls have become stronger because of tribulations. Their understanding of God's love for them has become more clear. Like it says in the Psalm, Psalm 138, the Lord will accomplish what, he, what concerns me 
Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. That if tribulation comes, does that mean God's left me? That he loves me less? No, not at all. That God's love is everlasting. It's not going to change because my circumstances change. It's not going to change because my feelings change. It's not going to change for any of those reasons. God's love doesn't change towards us. It is consistent. It is regular. It's always dependable. See, we have to learn that. Because we deal in in the human realm with fickle love. You know, she loves me, she loves me not. That kind of thing. Right? That's, that's terrible. That, no one could be secure in that realm. But we can be secure in the realm when God loves us. He loves us. Period. Right? It says even in 1 John, God is what? Love. Period. That's all you have to say. That's his character. And so you grow in that, especially to, through tribulation. Your understanding that God keeps you by his power becomes more obvious in tribulation. I should have been falling apart I should have thrown in the towel, but I didn't. The smoke cleared, the bullets stopped flying, and I'm standing, and I'm still trusting God. Who does that? You, by your willpower, by your strength? No way. That's the power of God, because your understanding has grown that what God started, he will finish, right? Philippians 1, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then you're understanding that you have a great high priest who intercedes for you in heaven. Right? He's preparing a place for you. He's going to bring you where he is. Those are the promises that we have. Also, it is an understanding that we don't want to shrink back no matter what comes, no matter what trials or tribulations or humiliations comes, that we have an assurance and a boldness given to us that the Lord has given to us, and so we hold fast to it. We don't want to let it go. We don't want anybody to take it from us. It's just like, actually, turn, turn quickly over to Acts chapter 14 when the apostles encouraged their people. And this is, this is something that I really want you to get. And this is the point of Hebrews also, and then in other places in Scripture. Look at Acts 14.22. This is the encouragement they give the people after giving them the gospel, after they come to faith in Christ. It says in verse 22 of Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You got that? God didn't promise us a rose garden. That's how the song goes, doesn't it? He didn't promise us that. You won't find it in Scripture. So don't live there. Live there. Expect tribulation to come. But be ready for it. And when it comes, be strengthened by it, knowing that God's not going to let you go. God's love hasn't lessened because of it. No. You trust the Lord, and your trust has become more regular and more practical, like the psalmist learned when he says, when he falls... He will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. And then he says this, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. God will never forsake us. In fact, God will never forsake us. Is going to, it's coming up in Hebrews. I'm not there yet. All right? He's building up to that in Hebrews. That's a truth that becomes embedded in the believer's heart. And so, again, if you're still in Acts... Let's take another example in Acts. How do you know when somebody has received the grace of God? What kind of evidence do you look for? Well, in Acts chapter 11, verse number 22, Barnabas is over in Jerusalem in the church, and news came back to the Jerusalem church saying, hey, there's a bunch of Gentiles over here that are trusting Christ. So they commissioned Barnabas to go and find out what's going on. And look what it says in Acts 11, verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived, look what it says, and witnessed the grace of God. Now, the question is, what did he say? Well, the word grace pointed to the exceptional effects produced by divine grace, that God was gaining and granting the free gift 
of salvation to sinful, self-centered pagans, and they were changing right in front of them. They were repenting of their sin. They were laying down their idols. They were following Christ. They were understanding the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. That's how you know grace has come to them. In fact, there's also evidence he gives them in that same passage of Scripture where he says, listen, in verse 23, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart. And of course, a resolute heart is the heart that places something or someone before anything else. He was admonishing them, listen, encouraging them that the purpose now in their life is to leave their former sins and walk in righteousness and to remain true with the Lord. Verse 23, to remain true with the Lord. Why did he say that? You know why? Because there's many temptations to go back to the old way of living. There's many tests of our faith. There's Many launching of the fiery missiles of Satan in his arsenal against true believers to get them to drift off or divert off course. And he's warning them, don't allow that to happen. That doesn't have to happen. You just keep walking with the Lord because we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are to appear instead as lights in the world. So, A divine work of grace in your life is the first encouragement to keep on going. Do you see that? Have you observed that in your life? Have others seen the change in you? Have you seen the change in yourself? Especially when you come out of a troubling time, a spiritual roller coaster, and God's holding you. You've learned things you couldn't have learned any other way. You realize that God should be first in all things. And you begin to prioritize your life and put him where he ought to be and serve him with the heart that you ought to serve him with. And see, things get arranged when trouble comes. And you know what? It's to your spiritual benefit. It's to your spiritual growth. But there's a second encouragement. And turn back to Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verse 35. And here's the second encouragement in verse number 35 it says do not throw away your confidence which has great reward you know what the second encouragement is the offer of reward reward yes why should we hold fast well i and you as a maturing christian have come to understand the great reason for not casting away my assurance in christ here it is Reward. Really unique Greek word. Three words connected to it means pay, to give, and to be in full. In other words, the wages due. Other translations translate this passage like this. The ESV, great reward. The NIV, richly rewarded. Another translation, remember the great reward it brings you. In other words, literally it means a pay gift due that God is going to reward us for enduring. He's going to reward us for enduring. He's going to reward a particular individual who endures. But he's going to reward us to endure. So to throw away our assurance is to throw away the great gift of pay, the great reward which God intends to give in full to us. So the true Christian's confidence has a great reward. What's the reward? Well, already mentioned script in Hebrews, there have been several things, but the incomparable glory that awaits all who are faithful to the end. The Romans 8 passage of Scripture. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then there's the imperishable inheritance prepared by God for his redeemed people. 
where he says in Peter, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And then the crown of righteousness in, mentioned in Second Timothy, which the Lord will bestow on all who love His appearing, where it says in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love His appearing. All right, All who have lived their life in light of Christ coming at any moment. Ready for Him. Ready for Him to come. Wanting for Him to come. The gold of the world growing dim in the light of His glorious face. Wanting to see Christ. So if you abandon the struggle, you abandon the prize. And you see that the fullness of the promise is yet future. All these things are preparing us to run the Christian race. That all these things that befall you and me are leading to the goal of glory. That the follower of Christ is to run the Christian race in order to reach the goal, to finish, and then to receive their reward. And no runner reaches the goal without endurance. No runner reaches the goal without practicing, without being in the race, without getting for the race, without eating, sleeping, and thinking about the race. That's what it is. That's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a race. That's why when you get to Hebrews 11, what does he talk about? We have so great a cloud of witnesses. Lay aside those things, those besetting sins, and those things that weigh you down in what? In the race so you can run. Run the way you ought to run the race, the way we're called to run the race. The master of the work is faithful who will pay you the reward of your work. For the reward of the righteous is a time in the future. See, that's the problem that we have. God has promised us these things, but the fulfillment of those promises are yet what? Future. Yes, we have evidence of grace in our life. That's an encouragement. We have a future reward set before us. That is an encouragement to run the race that God is going to reward us for being uh, uh, running the race with endurance. And so for the present time, though, while we're still here, while we're living, we all have the, this great essential need. And what is that need? Look at verse 36. For you have need of what? Endurance, verse 36. You have need of endurance. Endurance, this word means to persevere. It means actually, absolutely, emphatically to persevere under misfortunes, trials, and to hold fast to one's faith in Christ. That's what it means. The best single example of endurance that I know of in Scripture is Job himself. Where even in the book of James, in chapter 5, it says this, we count those blessed who endure. And then it says this, you have heard of the endurance of Job, haven't you? See, Job is, was a righteous man, but in every single trial that Job ever went through, and of course, the conclusion of the book of Job is, is trials is the school of trust. This is where you learn to trust, in the school of trials. And it's not always chastisement. It's not always that, but it is education. Trials educate us to what God is doing in our life. Job tells us that in all these things, he didn't blame God. Another thing is that Job did not sin with his lips and then in the end in chapter 42 the lord restored the fortunes of job when he prayed for his friends and the lord increased all that job had twofold 
But I would say that the greatest, greatest example of endurance is found right here in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse number 2, where it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Christ being our greatest example of endurance, we're called our greatest need right now while we're on this earth is to endure. No matter what time you live, no matter where, uh, what part of the globe you live on, no matter what historical point you live in, we all, every Christian has always needed endurance to run the race. But Satan desires to embitter the saints and cause them to misunderstand God's providences. He always tries to do that. That Satan sometimes uses physical ailments to try to draw people from God. He does that. He wants to draw you away from the race. He wants to get you to sit on the bench. But the believer should allow no providence to dissuade or discourage him or her in service to God, but should be so much more emboldened to persevere in God's way. So trial is the school of trust. And much distress is a blessing in disguise if it drives one to Christ and teaches the power of faith and prayer. So in all of it, God's infinitely wise. When it comes, what do you think, God doesn't know it? When it comes, maybe, and for the child of God, God has ordered it. God is in it. So really, to pray your way out of it, to get other people to pray your way out of it, you can't do it. Don't, don't go there, but just trust yourself to God. Ask the Lord to show you what He's doing in your life to make you what you ought to be as a believer in this world so you can be the person who's conformed to the image of Christ. See, God is infinitely wise. He will do everything for the best, for your best. So whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we should reference Him. We should be patiently waiting for what He is doing in our life. So, we all need endurance to hold fast to one's faith in Christ. But, back to verse number 36. Notice that the way Scripture captures what what is before the followers of Christ, it is packaged as a promise that it is given in the past. It says in verse 36, you may receive what was promised and what is promised over to chapter 9 and verse 15 for this reason he is the meter of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions and that were committed under the covenant those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance or eternal salvation that is the ultimate promise that the lord gives us and it was already promised in the past No one could change that or reverse that. But Christ bestows that promise only on faith. Only on those who are trustful and patient and patiently endure. In a way that pleases God. See, the will of God is to live live by faith. Verse 36, it says, For you have need of endurance so that you, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The will of God is that you live by faith. Now, if I asked a bunch of people, define to me this morning what it means to live by faith. Would you be hard-pressed to define that? Could you give me an example of that? What does it mean to live by faith? 
That's a tough one. But we ought to know if the Bible is calling us to it. See, what is faith? I'm not talking specifically about faith of coming to Christ. I'm talking about faithfulness after you're in Christ. See, faith is not mere consent to propositions about God as revealed in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. It's not just believing Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again, Christ is coming back. Those are propositions. We ought to, of course, hold to those and believe those, but that's not specifically what it's talking about here in Hebrews. It is the opposite of swelling pride or self-trust, faithfulness. It is humility before God. A readiness to conform to the will of God. That's why it says here in this verse, verse 36, when you have done the will of God, so you're willing to conform not to what you think, not to what you think ought to be, but to what God says. That's faithfulness. And your faithfulness, what God says and what His will is, may be totally contrary to everything you ever knew. Every feeling you ever felt. Everything the world says about things. Also, faith, faithfulness is a conviction that He cannot lie or fail. It's a deep conviction. God can't lie to me. He can't fail me. He has to accomplish His promises. He has to finish what He started Also, it is a reliance on Him in spite of outward circumstances. In spite of those things going on around you. So see, Christ bestows His promise of eternal salvation on those who are faithful. Not on those who shrink back. The point of the passage too. Not on Him who shrinks back. So it is... Not the prize for human merit. It is not self-confidence or one's own worth we're talking about here. No, but it is a continued confidence in God. And the only merit in which the Christian trusts is the merit of Christ and Christ alone. Now, it's at this very point where he says, listen, this is what we need. We need endurance. But what fuels endurance? Let's look what it says here in Hebrews 10, verse 37. He begins to quote from an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk. Did you ever hear of that prophet, Habakkuk? We're going to read some of the things that he says. And this is really a major section of this part of, of the point he is making. And let's turn there to Habakkuk. Well, let me read first in chapter 10, and then we'll turn to Habakkuk. For yet... In a very little while, it says, He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's the quote. That's quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, which is a little different than the Old Testament, what it says, but it means exactly the same, and I'm going to show you that this morning. But turn back to Habakkuk. Now, the best way to find Habakkuk Go to Matthew, and then right in front of Matthew is Malachi, and go back four prophets, and you'll find Habakkuk. All right? Other than that, you'll be flipping all over the place to try and find it. But look, let's look at Habakkuk. And I'm going to set up what's going on here in this passage of Scripture for you. Because it becomes vitally important to what he's talking about. Now, So at this point, he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to this Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is in very difficult circumstances. He has two major problems. Here's the first problem. He is burdened by the unchecked violence in Judah. That the people of God are sinning. And their sin has contributed to a violent atmosphere in, on, the, on the human level. And he's really troubled by it. And so he cries out to God, and God 
says to him in his complaint, he says to him this, I'm going to use the Chaldeans as an instrument of punishment. In other words, God is raising up the nation of the Chaldeans and he's going to use them to punish Judah for their sin. All right, doesn't seem like God's really solving his problem. Now, in the second, we'll look at Habakkuk, but chapter 2. So if you turn there, uh, wait for me there. Because this poses a second problem for Habakkuk, and it's this. The Chaldeans are more wicked than the Judeans. So in his mind, how could God raise up wicked Chaldeans that are going to come against the wicked Judeans? It doesn't make any sense, right? So he's really, really in a tough situation. But this is how God answers him the second time. He says this to him. My purpose is certain, and faith will be rewarded. Look at verse number 2 of chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord answered me and says, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, and the one who reads it may run. Verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his what? Faith. All right? So, This is the quote he's bringing from the Old Testament and he uses some different wording with the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and what he's using in uh, Hebrews. But he's saying this same thing. The prophet is simply telling the people that if they hold fast to their loyalty, God will see them through their present situation and victory only comes to the person who holds fast to what God says. In other words, it only comes to the person who's faithful to what God says. Now, the one who has faithfulness, and faithfulness must be exercised in relation to someone or something, in this case, The individual is to be faithful to God, to His Word, and to His promises. He must rely firmly upon them and have a deep trust in God Himself. That is His character. So Habakkuk, what he does is he lays down a principle. Actually a principle instrumental to bring about the well-being and security of the covenant people of God, whenever they live. And what is it? It's simply this. Faithfulness that is humble and steadfast that relies upon God's Word. If he perseveres in faith, he will gain his life. If he shrinks back, he will prove, according to Hebrews, a reprobate. Now, there's a difference, though, and I want to point out the difference. The Old Testament passage of Scripture uses, in verse number 4, behold, as for the proud one. It uses the word proud one to distinguish the word who, the person who shrinks back in Hebrews. Those is, that's what's replaced there. That's the difference. But, see... The terms shrink back and the term in the back a proud one, I don't think there's any discrepancy. And for this reason, in fact, it also defines us, it defines for us and helps us understand what shrinking back actually means. See, it's precisely the same person who is puffed up, who is proud in Habakkuk, who with self-sufficiency is therefore blind to the need of trustful patience and endurance in God's Word. Or in His promise, 
that God says, listen, I'll deliver you, but I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to deliver you, but it's going to happen. It's going to be certain, but you've got to trust what I say. That's what he says to Abaka. Abaka says, but the proud person is the person who doesn't trust God. He's the person who believes that God maybe doesn't know what he really is talking about, that this is not the best solution to the problem that we have here, and why should we wait for anything? Look what's going on around us. Our country is falling apart. And he's telling us to wait. In fact, in Habakkuk chapter 2, in verse number 4, notice what it says. Behold, for the proud one, notice his soul is not right within him. In other words, what? He's not right with God. Why? He's proud. He doesn't need God or his salvation or his word or his promises. He doesn't need any of those things. But on the other hand, look what it says about the righteous person. In verse 4. But the righteous will live by his faith. Or that Hebrew word is faithfulness. The righteous person is accounted righteous before God. Why is it? Because his soul is right with God. Because something's changed in that person. That this person, in turn, because he has a new nature, what does he do as a righteous person? He will live by his faith. Here is a person who has abandoned every pretension of self-sufficiency and whose whole life is a life that trusts wholly in God. Now, thank the Lord, Habakkuk was the kind of prophet that believed God, that was right with God in his heart, that was not proud with God, that was not a prophet who shrinks back Because the circumstances look so bad, there's no way we could be delivered from a human standpoint or from human intervention. And so he saw wisdom in God's promise. And matter of fact, this is how his faith is displayed. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17. This is what he writes, Habakkuk 3, verse 17. In fact, this is considered a song. He sings it. He sings it in the midst of suffering and unjust circumstances. He he sings it when there is nothing that gives him hope except God's word. Look what he writes. Look, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the field produce no food, though the flock should be cut off, and the fold, from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, look at verse 18, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, the Lord God is my strength, And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. And then it says there, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. It's a song. It's a song in the midst of sorrow and suffering and tribulation and affliction. And what is he doing? He said, Lord, there's no visible blessing anywhere I I look. Yet your promises are true. And you are the God I rejoice in. And I trust you at the right moment, at the right time, with certainty you will bring to pass my deliverance. That's how the Hebrew writer uses Habakkuk. And so, to shrink back is to renounce the life of faithfulness. It's the person who does, the person who does this, God has no pleasure in. See, the great faith chapter of Hebrews will inform us when we get there that without faith, it's what? 
It's impossible, impossible, impossible to please God. So doubt doesn't please God. Shrinking back definitely doesn't please God. In fact, fact, those who shrink back in Hebrews, they shrink back to destruction through eternal perishing. They have cast off the God of salvation and found no point of rejoicing in His plan because it was too hard. It was too hard to wait. It didn't seem like any wisdom at all to wait. So faith is now the life of the heart for the believer. Not sight. I'm not in heaven yet. I don't see it all yet. Faith sees it. Sees God's promise it come to an end. That's what faith is. And so faith becomes the heart, the life of the heart, until He comes who will give life to both soul and body. That's the promise that we have. So here's the bottom line. The key to successful endurance and perseverance is faith in God and His promises and His salvation. That's the key. So you see, being a Christian means that we have been given a new way to look at life. And that it is the end of life that makes this present Christian process toward the goal all important. This is what our text is telling us in Hebrews, that only those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who sit down on the track don't make it to the finish line. See, those who came in faith continue in faith. That's a real believer. And see, that is what the point of the passage is. And let's turn back to Hebrews, and I want you to see the structure of the text before us. In verse number 37, it simply says this. Jesus is returning soon. Is he returning soon? Where's the evidence? Where's God in the world? Things going on in Egypt. Turmoil in the Middle East. Destruction all around us. The economy, the bottom's dropping out. We may lose everything. Everything's changing so rapidly, nobody can keep up. Nobody even knows what to say. Has God's mission changed? Is Christ still coming back? What? Is He coming back with certainty? How do I know that? You know how I know that? By faith. That God can't lie to me. That God will always complete. Start What He starts, He completes. All right? That's how I know it. Because God is true. He is not a liar. He will not fail. That's how I know. That's faith. Can I prove it all? No. I'm not called to do that. I'm called to trust God. Right? And to say this is what he says. So Jesus is returning, verse 37. Verse 38. The saved will persevere by faith. What it says, but my righteous ones shall live by faith. Here's the characteristic of the true believer. They keep going. The perseverance of the saints. Yeah, though they get knocked down, they don't get knocked out. Though they're on the mat looking at the ceiling, they're getting back up. See, that's what the Bible's saying. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit of God in them. Because they've been listening to the Word of God and growing and becoming strong. They've been taking the spiritual weights and pumping steel. So whatever comes their way, they know they have the enemy of the devil, they're ready for him. The first John passage of Scripture, they're able to take the word of God and fight with the devil. Yo, you say this, this is what God says. So you're the liar, God's the one telling the truth. They can detect the lies, right? And then they learn to be a spiritual father. And what's a spiritual father? Somebody who walks by faith. They learn to trust God in all the little things. They see the providence of God in everything. 
Someone gets sick. Lord, what are you doing? A blessing comes. Lord, what are you doing in the blessing? See, that's how they live. God is involved with their life. They shall live by faith because they have a certain trust in their God. They rejoice in Him no matter what. And if God calls us to prison, if God calls us to hard times, if God calls us to give our life for the faith, He will give us the grace to endure at that time and live by faith because our promises, the promise He gives us, transcend this life and this time and these temporal things around us because we have an eternal inheritance, an eternal salvation, right? See, that's what it's about. But look at verse number 38 also. The lost will shrink back. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the lost will ultimately get out of the race, even if they made that profession of faith. Yeah, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. When the trials and tribulations come, they're out. They're out. Right? But not a real believer, no. They don't shrink back. They don't give up. They don't step back because they know whom they have believed. That he is able. Right? He is able to keep that which we entrusted to him and bring it to pass right to the end, right to the finish, right to the goal. That's our great God. That's why we can sing. That's why we can rejoice. So you can be confident that if there is evidence in your life of a genuine work of grace, that a genuine work of grace has taken place in your heart, and you are ever growing in the evidence that your lifestyle is a lifestyle of faithfulness, then God... He's telling us, listen, rejoice with these Hebrews. Because in verse number 39, look what he says. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Right? We are not of those, but of those who what? Who have what? We are of those who what? Have what? Faith. We are of those who have what? Faith to the person to the preserving of the soul. That's who we are. We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Meaning this, eternal life. We have eternal life. These things are written unto you that you may what? Know you have eternal life. So what could they possibly take away from you? Take my house, take my money, take my Jeep, take my jitney, take my job. Can't take my soul in my eternal life. Right? See, that's what it comes down to. You know what? In the world we live in, that's may, it may come on down to that sooner than we think. But Christians are ready. So see, objective truth enables us to enter into God's presence with confidence and those who profess faith in Christ will remain faithful. And thus giving evidence that those believing are members of Christ's household, yea, Christ's church, slash citizens of heaven. There's my address. 777 Glory Lane. I made that up. That's not in the scripture. But anyway... That's, see, that's, and chapter 11, I mean, chapter 11 of Hebrews, what is, what is it going to say? What is it going to tell us? These, this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and died and are now with God, this is how they lived and what happened to them. Do the same thing. And don't stop. Continue to endure till the end because God's faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I ask you this morning, To strengthen us, strengthen our faith, Lord. We know how you do it. 
We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to endure. We need endurance. And Lord, allow us to grow in faith so we can be faithful, so we can be that person who understands that faith is something that you are pleased with. It is something, Lord, that is opposite of pride and self-trust. It is a humility, Lord, before you to do your will. It's a conviction that you cannot lie or fail. It's a reliance, in spite of our circumstances and how they look, that you will bring to pass all your promises. And so, Lord, make us strong in the faith so we please you in all things. So, come hell or high water, we will stand firm and not let go of our confidence in Christ Jesus and the so great salvation you've given us. And we'll praise you for it. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.